0: Amen. Thanks, Eric. I want to invite you all to stand up one last time. I would like us to read our scripture passage together today. It's certainly a significant one. So it'll be on the screen. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, our scripture reading today is from Matthew, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, we'll jump in with these very words of Jesus, beginning with Blessed are the poor in spirit. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 5 verses three to six. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Father, we come under the authority of your words, spoken through your son, Jesus Christ. He is our rock. And in the midst of another difficult week, disease, hurricane, continued racial tension, social unrest, our hearts cry out for peace and justice. We know you hear us. Would you show us what it means to follow Jesus as we listen to his words this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Growing up, I was a big uh, fan of airplanes and and all these things. My dad was a pilot in the Air Force. His father was a pilot in the Army Air Corps in World War II. And I wanted to be a fighter pilot until my eyesight started being less than sharp. And then that dream had to go away. But my first hero that I ever remember was a man named Chuck Yeager. Yeager was the first individual to ever travel faster than the speed of sound. And he broke the sound barrier in 1947. By the way, that's about 767 miles per hour. It doesn't seem like crazy on our time. We've got airplanes that now go more than two times the speed of sound and even faster. But back then, this was the first time a human being had traveled that fast. And think about it, 1947, right after World War II, jet planes were a brand new thing. And so this group of very brave test pilots were stretching the limits of technology at that time, risking their own lives. A number of aviators died trying to break the sound barrier. Now, Jaeger did it in 1947. Five years later, in 1952, a movie was released called The Sound Barrier, and it wasn't a true account. It was a fictional account of um, a group of British pilots, in the way that this movie uh, told it, who were trying to break the sound barrier. Many of them were losing their lives. That part was true. But here's the part that wasn't true. The actual breaking of the sound barrier in the movie happened when a daring test pilot, when he reached the, the... critical speed, 767 miles per hour, had a theory that maybe the reason all the previous pilots were crashing is maybe the controls worked backwards on the other side of the speed of sound. So at that critical moment, when he crossed the sound barrier, he pushed the stick forward, which should have put him in a dive. Instead, it lifted him up because he was correct. His instincts were correct. The controls worked backwards on the other side of the sound barrier. Now, that's completely fictional. Chuck Yeager was asked later about it. He said, well, it was a good movie, but that's not at all how it actually works. But I share this illustration because I think this is super helpful to understand what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the moment in time where Jesus is taking the controls and he's making them work backwards. He's flipping upside down our conceptions of who's on top, who's on the bottom, who has power, who doesn't. What the, the authorities and kingdoms and governments of the world value, Jesus is saying, look in a different place. This sermon is a little bit like a sonic boom. You may know that when an aircraft breaks the spirit of sound, it creates a loud explosion. People can hear it for miles and miles around. This sermon is like a sonic boom that's been reverberating around the world for 2,000 years. For everyone who hears it, it's an uncomfortable sound. It's an explosion. It's just like, what was that? For those of us who truly have ears to hear, it's an explosion of new life. It's an explosion of new possibility. So we are on sacred ground, so to speak, when we study these words. That's always true of scripture, but these are some of the best known, most important words in all of the Bible. And honestly, I wish I had 90 minutes. I don't. I'm going to be as efficient as I can, but I don't want to speed past some of this because this text is meant to invade us, to sneak past our defenses and and work in us from the inside out to help us find wholehearted life. Now, we started in verse three with our corporate reading. I want to back up to verse one. If you were here last week, Lloyd did a great introduction to the sermon, but he didn't get into the sermon yet. Today, we're going to actually do that. So look at verses one and two. This is kind of a a preamble or a setup to the actual words of Jesus in verse three. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, before we move on to verse three, let me just point out a couple of things. So Jesus went up on the mountain. Lloyd explained last week why that's significant. Jesus is being compared to Moses Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law of God to give to the people. Jesus is doing something very similar. Jesus is not just a greater Moses. He's the final Moses. He's the fulfillment of everything that Moses represented. And so his disciples are recognizing something important when Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits down. Now, the significance of sitting down is that's the posture that a rabbi would take when he's going to teach. The rabbis did not teach standing up. So when Jesus sat down in a posture of teaching, this was gonna be significant. His disciples know that. So what does it say? When he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Guys, this is my prayer for our church in the series. That when Jesus sits down, in other words, when Jesus comes to teach us, that we come, we come to him. Jesus sits down, his disciples come to him because when we come to Jesus in expectation of him teaching us, he opens his mouth and he teaches. And that's why we can say this is the living word of God for us today, not just for them 2,000 years ago, for us today, it's alive, present tense through the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look in the text itself. I'm gonna reread the four beatitudes or, or blessed statements. And then uh, later on, we'll unpack them one by one. But I want to talk about the whole, the Beatitudes as a whole. Verses three to six. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, Jesus starts his sermon with a deliberate shock. This is the sonic boom. It's so surprising. When you actually understand what Jesus is doing here, it's bewildering, it's shocking, it's seemingly incomprehensible. It's even subversive. But it's hard for us to hear it this way in our modern English. There are two key concepts you have to understand to hear these words the way that Jesus' original disciples heard them. The first is blessed, The second is the kingdom, and so we're going to talk about each of these, and then I hope that through this, you'll be able to understand this better. The word blessed has become such a religious, watered-down word in our English vernacular. I don't know about you, but when I read these, that word "blessed," I I just it kind of creates in me this sort of religious, pious, blessed, blessed. I don't don't really know what I'm saying in this. Let's talk about this word. Carrie and Emily actually did a good job of explaining. They used the word "happy," but it goes deeper than happy. Like you know, the emotion of happiness is not what this is talking about. It's a state of well-being. It's a state of flourishing. So if you think about it. When the Greek people at that time said the well-off one, the happy one, the, the, the ones that are experiencing the good life, they would use this word blessed. It's the Greek makarios. So what Jesus is saying, it's, it's, it's similar to what he'll say later when he says, like, you've heard it said this, but I say that. He's essentially saying, you've heard it said that, that the rich are the well-off ones, that, that the happy and, and contented ones are the ones that have stuff. No, no, no. The blessed ones, the happy ones, the flourishing ones are the poor in spirit. The well-off ones are those who mourn. Those with the good life are the meek. Flourishing and happy and joyful are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's like, it's not this, it's this. He's, he's turning things upside down. Now, the tension is that all these things Jesus is naming are the very conditions that are the opposite of flourishing, the opposite of happiness. Who likes to mourn? Who, who, who likes to be poor? Any kind of poverty. Who likes to be meek? How can this be? How is it that the well-off ones, the truly blessed and happy and, and, and flourishing ones, are the poor and all these things? Well, that gets us to our second key word, which is kingdom. You notice that Jesus introduces the kingdom of heaven right away. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we hear the kingdom of heaven phrase, most of us think of, oh, heaven, the place I will go when I die to be with God. It is not less than that, but it is so much more than that. You have to understand what would have come into the mind of the first century disciples When they heard the word kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, these are typically used interchangeably, and and that's the case here. What they would have been thinking about was not what you're thinking about right now. They were not thinking about, oh, the place that I go after I die to be with God. What they were thinking about is the Old Testament promises of the reign of God on the earth through the promised Messiah, who would be a king who would set up his throne, the throne of David, and it would last forever. And the line would lay with the lamb, which is a metaphor that essentially means all the broken, wrong, violent, sinful things in this world will be made right. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of flourishing, a kingdom of wholeness. Shalom. Now, I want you to turn your eyes to chapter 4, verse 17. So probably the previous page in your Bible, maybe, it's only 10 or 11 verses before the Beatitudes. Listen to what Jesus says, chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now notice it's present tense verb. He's not saying the kingdom of hand is going to arrive soon or someday. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hand. And so if you want to understand the kingdom, you have to understand it's the rule of God through Jesus Christ. And it's not just future tense, it's present tense and future tense. And so theologians use these languages like an already not yet kingdom or a present Future kingdom, and you know, it's often hyphenated. It's this mashup to be like, yes, it's here, but it's also not yet here. It's not arrived in full. Uh, The best analogy that I can share about this that I heard from someone is, it's a little bit like World War II. If you know a little bit of the history of World War II, when the Allies landed uh, and D-Day, Normandy Beach, that was the start of the end for the Third Reich. That was the start of the end for Hitler and the German army. But the war wasn't over yet. There still had to be more territory to be taken. So they're saying, in essence, we live in between D-Day and V-Day, Victory Day. This is the era that we're living in. So is the kingdom at hand? Yes. Is the kingdom still to come? Yes. It is both. It's an already not yet reality. Now, when Jesus returns, future tense now, He will reconcile the whole creation to himself, and then we will experience the kingdom in full. But make no mistake, we are not meant to wait until Jesus comes back to begin experiencing and embodying the kingdom. There is a type of the kingdom that is present because the king has arrived. And and where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of the Father, but where is the body of Christ? Through the Holy Spirit is the church. That's a whole other sermon for another time, but I just want you to kind of feel this idea of the kingdom is not just to come. The kingdom is present. So what you'll see when you look through these beatitudes, some of them are present tense, some of them are future tense. Now, now that you understand a little bit about blessed, flourishing, happy, well-off, good life, kingdom, present, future, reality with Jesus as king, you can start to put these together, and your your understanding of this passage hopefully will come alive. So this is what Jesus is saying. We'll put put the text back on the screen if we can. Jesus is saying, if you want to know who is really blessed in my kingdom, in other words, the ones who are truly well-off and flourishing and in a good place, don't look at the people you'd expect. Don't look at the guy with the big house on the hill. Don't look at the the dude with all the sweet cars in the garage. Don't look at the woman that's got the perfect clothes. And don't look at the people with all the social media following and the the influencers. If you want to know who is the really well-off in my kingdom, look low. Look at the poor in spirit. Look at those who are crying tears right now. Look, look, Look at those who are meek and humble, you see. And we want to say, but, 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 but. Jesus is announcing a kingdom of reversal where down is up and up is down. And in this new world, the kind of people that are in the best position are exactly the ones that everyone else overlooks or looks down upon. It's a new world order. In other words, this is the very moment that Jesus takes control of a jet <laughs> and makes the controls work backwards. Now, when you understand this, it makes sense why Jesus chose the people he chose to follow him. So the people that were hearing Jesus' voice, now notice he says the disciples came to him. So it was the 12. It probably would have been more than just 12 listening to these words, but it wouldn't have been the masses. It's like he was with the masses, then he goes up on the mountain and his closest followers come to him. It would have been the 12, probably would have been maybe 40, 50 other people, men and women who were following Jesus around as he was doing his teaching. And and these were not people who were the cultural elite. These were not the thought leaders. These these were not the change agents. These were not people with power. In other words, they're not the kind of people you and I would start with if we wanted to, to implement cultural change. According to the world system, the world's economy, Jesus did it all wrong. He ignored the people at the top. went straight to the people at the bottom. His followers were overlooked, poor, mostly uneducated, seemingly had nothing to offer society. And here is God himself choosing them, choosing to entrust his time, his word, to these people that were overlooked. And his choice of audience perfectly embodied the message of the sermon. Because when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit and the overlooked and those people that don't seem to be the right high places in the earth, he was actually making these poor people the blessed ones because they were the ones that got this gift. To hear God himself turn the world upside down, would you not have killed to be there? Not killed, take that back. <laughs> <laughs> now, one more thing, while we're talking about the Beatitudes as a whole before we get to the individual ones, uh, you, you really also need to understand this next part if you want to understand the The Beatitudes. Not only was Jesus saying there's blessing for you if, if, if you're in these groups that are described, but he's saying there, that, that I will bless the world through you. In other words, he's saying it's through you that the blessing of God will come upon this earth. N.T. Wright explains this really well. I, I'm gonna read you this quote that was really helpful to me and I think it'll be helpful to you. It says, when God takes charge, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek and the poor and the hungry for justice people and the merciful and the peacemakers. And by the time the people with the tanks and the guns have realized what's going on, the meek and the merciful and the poor of heart have established schools and orphanages and hospitals and all sorts of projects in order to show what it looks like when God becomes king. Now, that's exactly the way that the history of Christianity worked out. Like, for the first couple hundred years of Christianity, it was like the the poorest of the poor people were the ones that were coming to Christ. And they were the ones that were staying behind when there were plagues. And they were the ones that were, like, helping people. And they were the ones that were establishing education. And they were doing all these things, you see. It was the kingdom of God that was being reflected, you know. Don't get your theology wrong. We cannot bring the kingdom of God into reality. That's Jesus' prerogative, but we're meant to be salt in light of it. That's why Jesus, when he gets through the Beatitudes, in verse 13, he goes straight to your salt of the earth, your light of the world, your city on a hill. So the blessing is not just for the poor in spirit and the mourning and the meek and all these. The blessing is also going to be through. So, Let me sum up the message of the Beatitudes and then we'll start with these four that we have today and I'll briefly, because I don't have a lot of time, I'll briefly go through each. Here's the message of the Beatitudes. Jesus is announcing good news for a broken world. He's saying, in me, the long hoped for kingdom of God is arriving. It's not like any kingdom you've ever known. It's a complete inversion of the value systems of society and government and the social structure of the world. And in and through this kingdom, everything will be made whole. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, will be satisfied. And it's not just in the future someday. Jesus is inviting his disciples into something right at this moment. And, and he's saying, and I don't want you just to experience the blessing of God. I want you to become a vehicle for the blessing of God on earth. And then Jesus is going to spend the rest of his ministry but before the cross just living out these things. He's like, I'll show you what to do. You follow me, and, and, and you'll see how this is going to work. Now, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming and then embodying throughout his life is truly upside down. But when you consider who it is that is speaking... It's maybe right side up. Maybe it's our world and our society and our governments that are upside down. Now, I wanna touch on our four Beatitudes that we have today in the text, and then Lloyd next week is gonna finish the rest of the Beatitudes, and I wanna touch on them just enough so that they bother you in the best possible way because they should. They're meant to like get underneath your skin. And as you meditate on them this week, it's just kind of like, oh, I'm poor in spirit, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Does this describe you? Should it? I want this to start eating away at you a little bit in the best possible way. Now, let's talk about these. Verse three Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Um, We know what it means to be poor. To be poor means to not have enough. To be poor means you cannot provide for your own needs with your own resources. You're dependent on someone else. You're dependent and so in this context back then in ancient days if you were poor there were no government systems there was nothing that could prop you up you were at the mercy of the kindness of strangers or maybe family member if they would take you in ultimately you're at the mercy of God. And so to be poor in spirit means to understand that you have no spiritual resources. You have no moral standing. In and of yourself. To be poor in spirit means to know that you're completely dependent upon God to rescue you. To be poor in spirit means to be aware that you're morally and spiritually bankrupt. Your account is at zero. John Stott, great Bible scholar, he put it this way In the Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom. They thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments. Nor was it the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but instead publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society, who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was to cry to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. Now, I love that quote. I'll pick at one thing on it. There was at least one Pharisee, we know, that chose to follow Jesus, at least by the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we find him uh, um, a, a, being a part of Jesus' burial. And then, and then after um, the church starts in Acts, other Pharisees start coming to Christ. So being a Pharisee doesn't automatically rule you out of the, the kingdom. The question is, are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Jesus is saying the poor in spirit are are the blessed ones because the kingdom is theirs, present tense. They're the ones who possess it. The truly rich ones are the poor in spirit because they've emptied themselves and so they have space for God to fill. The poor in spirit are receiving far more than they could ever give up. It's the spiritually bankrupt who suddenly find themselves overwhelmingly rich with grace. This is why, man, that poem that Brian read earlier before he brought us to the, the table, oh my. It brought tears to my eyes. Come one, come all, come in. This and that and the other, those that are they're full of yourself, just empty yourself and come. You know, the Republican, Democrat, the racist, the protester, that. Come, come to Jesus, empty yourself. Fine life. I, I think about the moment in time when Jesus told the story of, of the, the, the pious one praying to God, God, thank you for not making me like this other guy next to me. And then the tax collector despised in the society on his knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, which one's closer to the kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. This one's hard to believe because every cell in your body pushes against pain and loss and suffering and mourning. Our instinct is to avoid grief at all costs. Jesus is saying it's actually more wonderful to mourn and be comforted than to never mourn at all. I think about Jesus grieving beside the tomb of his close friend Lazarus. And right beside Jesus were these two women, these sisters, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, who were with bitter tears crying out. Jesus, in that moment, chose to enter into the deepest pain that human beings know, the pain of loss. And, and that's that, that verse, Jesus wept, two words. That's when we find that verse, right at that moment. And he knew he was about to heal Lazarus. He knew he was about to raise him up. Yet he enters into the pain. He enters into the mourning, you see. And then he gives Lazarus back to Mary and Martha. And I want you to think about this, guys. Can you imagine the joy of that moment? The joy of the reunion was surely greater than the pain of the loss. The joy of the reunion was greater because of the pain of the loss. This is how it will be in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. meek is an unappealing word in our English language. I don't know about you. If someone describes me as meek, I would not see that as a compliment. It described Jesus. There's one verse in the Bible where we read about what Jesus' heart is like. There's one place in the scripture where Jesus describes his heart, his, his core, his inner person the verse is Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29 and in this verse Jesus says I am gentle and lowly in heart the same Greek word that Jesus uses for gentle translated gentle in English is the same Greek word that's translated meek in our verse in Matthew chapter 5 to be meek is to be humble and by the way, humility is not thinking less of yourself than you actually are and you know, browbeating yourself is like, I'm worthless, I've got nothing to offer the world. That's not true humility. Humility is understanding that you were spiritually bankrupt, yet you're chosen by God through Jesus Christ, that you are beloved, that you are holy, that you are set apart, that you are filled, but not filled of yourself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones described meekness this way. It's a humble and gentle attitude toward others which is determined by a true estimate of ourselves. What's so interesting to me, and this is like vulnerability time for me, it's easy for me in my own heart about myself to proclaim, oh man, I, I am I, I'm a sinner. I, I, I struggle. I, I've got some things in me that are broken and wrong. But if someone else were to say that to me, Rob, you're a sinner. Rob, you're broken. I would bristle, <laughs> You see, this is true, I think, for for all of us. And, And what Jesus is saying, that is on the kingdom of God, the earth will be inherited by the meek. Did you notice that the earth itself will be given to the meek? Who does it belong to? It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus, but who's gonna inherit it? Not the people who try with their own strength and power to possess it, but rather the ones who rightly know it's not theirs to take. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And finally, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness is more than just moral goodness, although it it certainly is a part of it, it's a hunger and thirst for God to make all things right. And so righteousness starts in your own heart, your own sense of rightness, your own moral purity in a way. And again, it's an inside out transformation like Eric was talking about earlier. But righteousness starts in your heart and then it extends out through you into your relationships. Always the the people that are closest to you are the ones that are impacted and and, and touched with your own inner, inner rightness. And then it goes to your affect on the world, your influence on the world, and it's ultimately God who will set the whole world right. So Jesus is saying, those who hunger for righteousness and thirst for righteousness, they're gonna be the ble- they are going to be the blessed ones because they're going to be satisfied. And, and here's what I love about this. He's saying, not just will you experience your own internal righteousness, but you'll be able to be a part of God's work of righteousness on this world, in this world through you. Which for those of you that have experienced, you know this, Being used by God is the most satisfying thing on the planet. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I want to just close with a a final thought. I, I was thinking about how do we apply this. This is not the kind of sermon that I think I can say, okay, guys, here's your application. Go home and do such and such. I don't think this text works that way. As I've been thinking about this text and and how to encourage us to apply it, this thought came to my mind. I don't think it's as much a matter of what we do with it as it is a matter of what it does in us. It being the living word of God for us today. I want to read you this quote and then I'm going to ask you to reflect on a question with me and then we'll close our service with a song. Here's the quote by a, a French Theologian named Serve Pinkers. We can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It turns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. Men and women, I would submit to you that there is no better place to be than poor and naked before God. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I want to invite you for just a couple of minutes to reflect with me together silently on this question before we close out our service with worship. Here's the question, we'll put it on the screen. What would change in your life if you emptied yourself and began living by faith in God's right side up kingdom? Let's consider that for a few moments.